That's so fucking weird. <laughs> oh god. Um. So boo. It's not number one anymore. It's not, but it's still number one in my heart and number two on Sight and Sound. Yes, it is. Because this week we're talking about Vertigo. Yeah, uh, the the music in this is is fire. I like the music in this. Oh my god, it's I love the music so really much. Weird. Oh, but yeah, so the new BFI Sight and Sound Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list dropped today as we're recording. Yes. Uh, previously, it was held by Vertigo, the number one greatest film of all time in for 2012. For 10 years. For 10 years. But uh, now it is Jean Delmont 23 Quai du Commerce 1080 Brussels. Yeah, sorry, it's it's in French. My friends just crap, but that's the new number one film on the sight and sound list. I was ready to pass you your inhaler in case you needed to take a hit there. Oh, I was gonna need it if I kept going. But yeah, so we're not talking about that movie. We're talking about Vertigo Woo-hoo! today. Woo-hoo! And uh, this is the Hitchcock movie. It's his most Hitchcockian movie. Yeah, it has the most of his weird tropes and eccentricities and the most hitchcocky of hitchcock stuff in this movie <sighs> just breathe it in man it's so hitchcock <laughs> uh, yes um it, it's not it's neither of our favorite hitchcock movies though it's up there it's like my second favorite hitchcock movie yeah well your favorite is psycho yeah. right and my favorite's rear window but i appreciate vertigo i understand why a lot of people like it and surprisingly it was a flop when it first came out a- I know it was a flop. I don't know how big of a flop it was, though. Well, I mean, it was part of the reason why Psycho was such a hard movie to make, because it flopped at the box office, and it was kind of like, we let you do what you wanted to do, and now you really want us to let you do it again? And it was just like, no, 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 let's move on years later, where, you know, you have more people telling you, this is one of the greatest films ever made. It took a while for that to Mm -hmm. happen, because this movie comes out in what 1958 yes this is 58 may of 58 yeah and yeah it just it had a really hard time it was kind of weird going and researching the movie and finding that a lot of critics had fault with jimmy stewart being too old for the movie and they thought that was the reason why it flopped and i was just like wow ageist and how can you you know put that on somebody Ooh, you're good looking, but you're a little too old, so I, I, I mean, hate this movie. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there, because Jimmy Stewart is way old in this movie. Yeah, he's a lot older, especially for, you know, Kim Novak being his, you know, counterpart. He's, I think what, pushing like 60 in this? Yeah, I have it written down here. I think he's 59. Oh, Let me see. okay. He's either 59 or 49 in this movie. Oh, he has to be 59, because this comes out in 58, and he was in World War II as a pilot. Yeah. Uh, let's see, where is it? I don't see it. Oh, here it is. He was 49, and Kim Novak was 24. Okay, that... 49? Mm-hmm. You sure? Yeah. That's, okay, that's wild, because, granted, he looks like he's pushing, like, in his mid-50s in this. And that's a thing we've said before about actors of this era. They yeah. just look older. They look a lot older. I mean... Health and beauty regiments are a lot better now, and the mm. older people now look a lot younger. But it's like, man, that's a lot of heat to put on one person, you know, oh, because you're you're too old, a movie would flop. It's like, 
then I can't imagine saying this movie would have flopped because of Jimmy Stewart. I think Jimmy Stewart's doing a good performance. I think the movie flopped at the time because this is a weird movie for 1958. It's like a little bit of noir, mm -hmm. a little bit of a um, surrealist nightmare. It's yeah. a little bit of a romance. It's, mystery. It's a lot of mystery. The thing with it that probably made it flop so hard was it was... Probably people looked at it and said, this is a sloppy, weird movie. But granted, a reevaluation, they're like, no, this is like a masterpiece. Hitchcock, Hitchcock's masterpiece. And I mean, you know, it's interesting to see how even Hitchcock was kind of like, yeah, you know, maybe it was a little miscast. And seeing how he kind of took it to heart, you know, when people didn't like this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, years, decades later, it's like, no, we got you. We understand your vision and what you're going for. But it's like, I also can't see it being done with any other actors. I mean, I, I can't see anybody else playing uh, Scotty in this Jimmy Stewart's part. Yeah. Like Jimmy Stewart is, is great. I like Jimmy Stewart in like everything I've ever seen him in. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's a wonderful life. Like he's a really, really good actor. Rear window. Re yeah. Loved him in rear window. But this is one of those things where, I, I feel like everyone else is a little bit easier to recast. I mean, Kim Novak is kind of a, a find, right? Because she wasn't originally meant to play the part. Yeah, it was originally supposed to be uh, Vera Miles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was during this time that that's when she got pregnant and she kind of had to, you know, bow out. And I guess apparently during, like, the making of Vertigo, uh, Hitch also had, like, gallbladder surgery, which pushed uh, production further. And that's when... Uh, Vera Miles ended up getting pregnant. So it was just this thing where I was like, okay, I've lost my leading lady. But even originally, she wasn't his first choice. It oh, was... Uh, uh, Grace Kelly? No, it was uh, Lana Turner. Oh, And okay. her paycheck was a little too hefty for this movie. But it was pretty interesting to see, like, Vera Miles in, like, the production stills mm -hmm. before, like, getting everything ready for Vertigo. Her and Kim Novak in character looks so similar it's creepy oh well that probably sounds right because that's that's why i feel like so many of the other actors in the film could have been recast because it feels like kim novak's character um madeline 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 yeah madeline Slash I'm gonna, Judy. I'm going to keep mispronouncing everyone's names, by the way. Well, I mean, that's what you do in general. You mispronounce yeah. everything and then you're like... Manderley? Oh, Manderley? God. Lay? So... With Kim Novak, I feel like what Hitchcock was trying to do is create, like, a doll. Because, mm -hmm. don't be wrong, Kim Novak does a great job once she's able to beat Judy. Yeah. But as Madeline, Madeline? Madeline. Madeline, she's just this ethereal figure. She doesn't have to do a lot of heavy lifting as Madeline. Yeah. Like, all the heavy lifting in that relationship is done with Scotty, Jimmy Stewart's character. Mm -hmm. And he's really selling this obsession, really selling this... This kind of aged guy falling head over heels, being love struck for like mm -hmm. the first time. Yeah, it it's a really interesting dynamic with that. Um, but I that's why I think everyone else is a little bit more malleable. But I don't know if that's, I don't know if the cast is why the movie flopped. I think it was just ahead of its time. You think so? Yeah, I think it was just one of these films where the people who got to see it when it first came out and loved it. They understood it. And it was just, you know, people couldn't really grasp 
oh, that's the same person. Wait, what's going on? Why is this happening? Do you think it's a hard movie to follow? No. I mean... The the murder plot's a little convoluted. A little bit, but, you know, just giving Kim Novak, you know, her due where she's really able to play these two different characters, where there's sometimes where it's like, oh, yeah, you are the same person, but Judy and Madeline are two different people. I think that's the best work she does in the movie, Mm -hmm. is when she does that transformation from Judy into Madeline. Mm Mm-hmm. And we see her, and she looks exactly like Matt, like uh, Madeline should, mm-hmm. but how she moves and how she just carries herself, just yeah. walking across the room in that green glow. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, that's still Judy. And that's fascinating, because mm-hmm. I just saw J- Kim Novak play Madeline for an hour and ten yeah. minutes up to this point, and I'm like, no, that's not the same person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like, I don't even know... Like, I can't even put out exactly why, but it's like, no, those are two different people. They just look exactly the same. And that's how I felt, you know, growing up and watching this movie. I'm like, and I'm like, well, no, that's, you know, that's a different lady. That's not Madeline. And then, you know, seeing the transformation and it would blow my mind. And even now, you know, it's just seeing these little steps, you know, okay, you need to change your shoes. She wouldn't wear this. She wouldn't do that. And just seeing her, you know, become this other person that we've seen for over an hour it's like a magic show speaking of the the magic show we should probably tell people what this movie's about yeah you have a, a box somewhere uh, i got a box somewhere let me uh just add uh, uh, uh okay found it all right <clears throat> so for everyone who's curious what vertigo is about is john scotty ferguson is a retired san francisco police detective who suffers from vertigo and Madeline is the lady who leads him to high places. A wealthy shipbuilder who is an acquaintance from his college days approaches Scotty and asks him to follow his beautiful wife, Madeline. He fears she is going insane and maybe contemplating suicide, as he believes she has been possessed by a dead ancestor committed to suicide. Scotty is skeptical but agrees to the assignment after he sees the beautiful Madeline. Soon, Scotty falls in love with Madeline, and their romance crashes when she falls to her death. But soon, Scotty finds... Sorry, I can't fucking read this. Soon, (laughs) Scotty finds another woman bearing a striking resemblance to Madeline. And soon, he falls in love with her and tries to mold her into the memory of his lost love. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah, so that's basically the movie. Yeah, and, you know... Is he suffering from vertigo or is he suffering from acrophobia, which is, you know, the fear of heights? It's a it's acrophobia. I it, I changed it to vertigo because acrophobia just is a weird word to say when yeah. I already fucked up reading the back of this box. <laughs> it's okay. It's a big box. But yeah, vertigo, uh, he has this big fear of heights and it's established really early on in the movie. Oh, it's like yeah. the opening scene. Yeah. Because um, the opening scene of this movie is really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's this chase sequence, right? We just open on action. They're yeah. chasing this suspect over these San Francisco high rises, and Scotty, because huh, afraid of heights, absolute pussy, gets a cop killed in the line of duty. God damn it, Scotty! Just fucking it up. Just fucking it up, Scotty. No, but it's a thing where Scotty slips. The officer tries to, you know, extend his hand out to him, and the officer ends up losing his balance and falling over scotty and plummeting to his death yeah and scotty's just hanging off the side of this building 
how long is Scotty hanging up there? Does he fall off? Because they mentioned that he has like a cane now and he has like this girdle thing going on. Did he fall off? I don't know if they say that he fell. I mean, unless it's just the injuries from jumping from one rooftop to another. Uh, I mean, mm. look, if you're getting injured I mean, jumping if... 10 feet, then I, I think I want him off the force. But I mean, you know, if you're going to fall that high from a building and all you have to do is just walk with a cane and a girdle. Well, he landed on the officer. Softened his landing. I hope not. That's terrible. <laughs> that that's the deleted scene. Oh, there is actually a deleted scene in this movie we can talk about. Is there? We'll we'll get to it when we get to it. Oh, but, okay. But after that, we um meet his ex fiance Midge Midge, who's also his best friend and who again looks like ten years younger than Jimmy Stewart in this movie. Yeah, considering they went to college together, and it's just like very confused, like. Was he a professor? Um, <laughs> You're like, yeah, Midge, back in our old college days. And I'm like, bro, were you, did you drive her there? Like, was she just like 18 and you were like 27? Was that how this worked out? And I mean, I love Midge. She's really funny. She's, you know, she has a lot of heart. And it's just it's sad that it's revealed that, you know, they were once engaged to each other. And he's like, well, you know, you were the one that broke up the engagement with me. And it's like... Well, she broke up the engagement because you weren't in love with her. Do you think that's why? I think so, because Midge is, you know, a strong, independent woman. And it's this thing of, you know, yeah, I could possibly have a partner for the rest of my life, but I also have to live with, he's not in love with me the way that I'm in love with him. I don't know, because every time, because Midge seems to be really close to Scotty. I I think she probably wasn't in love with him. Like, he proposed to her, right? But this gets into an interesting thought I had. I don't know if Midge is in love with Scotty more than she's just obsessed with keeping him around. Like, because she's, like, jealous that um, Scotty falls in love with Madeline mm-hmm. and Judy and all this other stuff. But Midge... I don't know if she actually loves Scotty. I think she loves having the fact that, oh, I have this guy that used to be on the hook and now, like, he's always following me around. No. That might be a too of, a, like, a mean take of her. Yeah, that, that's not the impression that I get. I, I get that, you know, they were about to be married and it was, you know, he doesn't love me the way that I love him, so I can't go through with this. But at the same time, I still love him too much to completely let him go. So I'd rather have him as a best friend than nothing. Because how I mean, long, how long ago were they engaged? I don't know if they say it. They just say that they were engaged in their college years. I'm assuming so. And, and Scotty's looking pretty old, and Midge doesn't look that old. No. Midge looks like she's like, you know, maybe like in her early to mid thirties. Yeah, she she doesn't look that old. But so, so we'll we'll go with this. 10 plus years ago, you were still best friends with your ex-fiance? Mm-hmm. Honey, like, I I think there's something beyond, like, oh, I just like having him around. Well, I mean, you know, it's a thing where she likes having him around, she loves him, wishes, you know, maybe... He'd give it another shot. Or, you know, he'll finally fall for her, mm-hmm. the, the way that he should have, you know, fallen for her, like he does for Madeline. And it just shows the contrast of madeline and midge where you know midge is willing to take care of him and it's you know hey let's go to a movie or i'll cook you dinner you know let's hang out and you know madeline is 
she's this mystery wrapped in an enigma, wrapped, wrapped in, in a pretty box. And, yeah. you know, Scotty is just like, I got to solve this mystery and, you know, chase after her and, you know, drive through the streets. So it's this thing where he's got someone that's constant and healthy for him versus this pretty thing that needs to be saved. I think that falls in line with a lot of Hitchcock tropes mm -hmm. where he's, I notice a lot in his movies, there's usually, you know, a, a, a some, a, some sort of like mystery or some, or like an obsession. Yeah. Right. And in like psycho, for example, Norman Bates is, is like obsessed with like the voyeurism obsessed mm -hmm. with these, his mother, his mother, uh, in Rear Window, um, Jimmy Stewart's character in Rear Window is obsessed with, like, again, more voyeurism, mm -hmm. but, like, the people around him, like, seeing the apartments. Mm -hmm. And then he gets obsessed with this, was that a murder I saw? Obsessed with unraveling this plot. With Scotty in this, he's obsessed with, like, women. Yeah. is He becomes obsessed with Madeline, and I think that's the issue Midge has. I think I'm on your side on this. I think Midge's problem is that... Scotty is a man of obsession and he never got obsessed over Midge. No, it was just, you know, you're here, I love you, but it's, you know, in a, it, you know. Like, a, like, I love you, but I'm not going to, you know, obsess about it. No, and I mean, even to the point where they have, you know, Jimmy riding around or Scotty riding around in the white car. And, you know, Scotty's, you know, basically this knight on this white horse and I'm going to go save, you know, the, the damsel in distress and it's just, yeah, you know, he, this is basically Hitchcock looking for the perfect Hitchcock blonde. Yeah. And she's always out of grasp. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he had her, he had her in Grace Kelly. Grace did, Kelly yes. is the, is the perfect Hitchcock blonde. She is. And, you know, she became Princess Grace of Monaco. <sighs> and it was like, you know, again, out of your reach. Yeah. That, that's the interesting thing. Why is it that Hitchcock is obsessed with this same kind of woman you know these these kind of um aloof mysterious women you know very you know sensual figures mm -hmm. blonde hair what is it that he's so obsessed with these kind of women i mean i, I guess yeah guys got a preference guys got a kink but yeah it's but i mean it's so pervasive it's like everybody we all obsess over something you know can't really explain it you know we like what we like it's just what lengths are we willing to go to to feed that obsession? Mm -hmm. And Scotty's willing to, you know, trail this woman around wherever she goes. And, oh, you know, she's possessed by an ancestor of her past, but I can save her. Mm -hmm. And that's Scotty's complex is, you know, he's got this, I, I can save anybody. I can save you. And it's a lot of guilt from letting this other officer die. And it's, you know, him with telling her, Oh, you know, like that, that Chinese proverb or saying, you know, where you save somebody, you're in charge of them the rest of your life. And that's how he feels like, you know, I'm in love with this girl. So I got to, you know, be with her. I got to take care of her every day. You know, let's let's talk about that, because after, you know, we get introduced to Midge and, and Scotty's vertigo and he gets licensed up by Gavin to follow Madeline around. Scotty, you know, falls around, trails her. We find out that is she or isn't she possessed. But also, when Madeline actually attempts suicide mm -hmm. and Scotty saves her, do you think Scotty, quote-unquote, falling in love with her, do you think that that's an organic thing? Or do you think it's just him obsessed with this mystery woman and then that develops into this 
pseudo romance because we know from watching the movie that that madeline is not actually in love with him at first it's an act it's completely man-made um i can't think of the friend's name um the one that is married to quote-unquote madeline uh gavin gavin yeah you know i I have i haven't written down somewhere okay yeah I, i couldn't remember his name gavin you know he's the one that comes up with this plan and you know he's trying to you know kill his wife off so he hires madeline on to pretend to be her or so, Judy on to play Madeline. Judy on to be Madeline, yeah, you know. So it's, you know, kind of genius in a sick way that he knows his friend, so he's able to bring on a woman that will entice and check off all those boxes for Scotty. So for Scotty coming in, it's, okay, I'm doing a solid for a friend. And then it's, oh, wow, she's kind of beautiful. Oh, wow, I'm working a case again. You know, I'm just newly retired. I have something to do. So it's, you know, putting all these things into motion so he falls in love without, you know, actually knowing it's a trap. I I never thought of it like that. That is actually a genius thing because now because because I think a lot of people have made a comment that it's like, oh, this movie masterpiece as it is. Oh, that murder plot is like ridiculous. It makes no sense. It requires so much so many things to fall in line for it to work. Yeah. But that actually makes sense. Gavin being this mastermind of this murder, he's not having Judy play Madeline, his wife. He's having Judy play Madeline, Scotty's perfect woman. Exactly. And that makes so much more sense. Oh, you're going to play this mysterious, aloof blonde. He's, she is playing Hitchcock's ideal blonde. Yeah. And Scotty becomes the obsessive about it. And, and that's why he follows her to the ends of the She's the Venus flytrap. Oh, that's... And he just falls in hook, line, and sinker. Oh, that's okay. Because I, ne- I never thought about it like that. Because I had always looked at the movie as, you know, oh, she's playing Madeline, Gavin's wife. But yeah. that, that makes so much more sense. That, yeah, that and works. Okay. I mean, you know, he's trailing her. And it's always to beautiful places. He trails her to the museum. He trails her to uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, even the cemetery, the old cemetery, it's beautiful. There's flowers. And then... They also shoot it like he's in an, a, a dream. Exactly. It, you know, even the flower shop that you go to, you know, he's... They're coming in through this dirty alley, and he opens the door, and it's this It's most, Wizard of Oz. It's the Wizard of Oz, and even the framing where we get that reflection of... Um, I want to say Kim Novak, of Madeline. I mean, it is Kim Novak. It is, but... You know, Kimmy. Good old Kim. Kim, yeah. But we get her where it's like, he's looking through a frame at her, and we're seeing her through the mirror, and it's just, you know, everything is an illusion. And you could see why he would fall in love, because everything that she's near is beautiful. She's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, totally easy to get him in there and just, you know, boom, he's in love, we got him, you know, and we're gonna be able to pull off our plan and he's not going to know what hit him that is like that's a genius bit of writing that is really subtle and i really like it because because i've watched this movie a a few times Mm -hmm. i've probably only watched it maybe like four times i think yeah and that's spread over like 10 years Mm -hmm. but watching this this time you know starting to pick up on a lot of things I think I always just assumed, oh, why does Scotty fall in love with, you know, uh, Madeline or Judy? And I'm like, well, one, it looks like Kim Novak. Like, yeah, yeah I, I think a lot of lot of Jimmy Stewart guys mm. would be like, I get Kim Novak if I just, yeah. you know, bend my morals a little bit. Mm. Eh, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll go with that. But that's like, that's an interesting thing 
because their whole relationship develops like so quickly mm-hmm. and that explains why it develops so quickly because Madeline doesn't have to play along. No. She just has to be exactly what Gavin told her to be, which is the perfect Hitchcock blonde. Mm-hmm. It does that put does that place Scotty in the role of Hitchcock? Yeah. Is, is mm-hmm. Scott well, is Scotty just a direct Hitchcock parallel? Is he just an author surrogate? Yeah, because I mean he never found that perfect person. And, you know, even though Scotty kind of gets the girl, loses her, gets her again, and loses her again, it's just this thing of, you know, it's not really meant to be. And that's how it was with Hitchcock. You know, he had Alma. He had his wife. You know, he loved his wife. But it's just, you know, this thing that you never got. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's how we get, you know, through Scotty's story where you get so close, but it wasn't meant to be. Mm. Man, that, I wonder how Hitchcock's wife Alma felt about Vertigo. Oh, I mean, it was hilarious. I read somewhere that, because, you know, Alma was... A, 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 a consummate professional and also his, like, working collaborator for decades. She was his right hand. So it was this thing where, you know, they constantly worked on these projects together. And she had watched, I don't know if she watched it in its entirety, but um, she had said that she didn't like one scene. I think it's when... Kim's by the waterfront when she's about to jump in. Mm. And she said that she didn't like it because of the way they framed her. They made her look really big in that scene. And I guess, you know, compared with the bridge, you want her to look that much more small. This tiny little thing jumping into the harbor. Mm -hmm. So Hitch being, you know, typical guy told everybody, you know, during interviews. He's like, oh yeah, Alma hated the movie. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, no, like typical man, one Mm. little critique and you got to, you know, she hates it. Oh my God. Absolute sexist. Just ripped my heart out. You are are so sexist. (laughs) And you do that to me when I'm like, I didn't like this part of the movie. And you're like, oh, he hates everything I love. Broke my heart. It's not just this one part. You'll go on and on. You're like, it was a fine film. It was fine and fun. You're like, oh, so you hated it. No, it was fine and fun. You're like, you you enjoyed it, you plebeian. That's okay. (laughs) Oh, you sweet, simple little boo. But, you know, I think Alma understood her husband and understood this obsession for the perfect blonde. Whatever that meant to him. Yeah, because it's one of those things, because it comes up so often in Mm -hmm. the Hitchcockian oeuvre, right? He always has these leading ladies who are these who are these kind of women, you know, mm-hmm. these ethereal blondes, right? And he has somebody of obsession in mm-hmm. all these movies, mm-hmm. and it, this is the one that's the most forefronted with it. Yeah, and it, it's also a thing where it plays on a lot of like double identities. It plays mm-hmm. on, on a lot of like we are seeing a an act, you know. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier. When Scotty looks through the the shop, he's like framed. She's framed right yeah. through the window, and it's like oh, like a movie frame. We're seeing Hitchcock peer in through the the visage of the movie screen, creating his his perfect little world. And that's not even the first time we see that. The very first time that Scotty sees them at Ernie's, mm-hmm. when uh, Gavin says, and she, "Oh, and she's framed through the doorway." She's framed through the door, and you have you know the beautiful red paper. And she's in this stunning green and black dress. And you're, it's like, yeah, you could see why that attraction is built. Because, you know, color is very important. You know, red, you know, that is... It is so important in this movie. And that's something I saw where people were talking 
at the time a lot of gripe because oh the colors in this are so saturated and the color theory is so blunt because it because let's be honest here like a lot of the colors in this movie are just blunt as hell oh yeah she is she is this green thing transposed against these very red backdrops uh scotty is this brown demure color he's very toned down and she's this bright vibrant thing in the world and then she wears like this gray which is very off-putting when you're blonde and all all these other things and i think it's so interesting watching the movie and just tracking every time you see green because green is this nostalgia this this thing that scotty interprets as meaning madeline when when judy walks out of the bathroom for the first time dressed in her madeline gear Mm -hmm. she's shrouded in that green light from the from the neon signage and that's a huge uh a huge kudos to saul bass because he was the was it visual coordinator of this film i know he did the title sequences yeah he did the title sequences he also did the poster yeah uh he was also responsible for like um the Shining poster. He did a lot of oh yeah, well, major he did, posters. I think he directed the opening of all the Pink Panther ones, the animated mm-hmm. ones. He did the um, openings for It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Like he's he's a working guy. He did the opening for Casino. Yeah, and this was the first movie to ever use computer graphics in its opening, mm-hmm. and that's kind of cool. Like really, you know, Vertigo. I mean, Vertigo is. Uh... It's a movie where there's not a lot of firsts, but. It's mastered all the traditions, and it's cool to see this is an actual first first. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, it has so many layers to it. it. You know, you just keep pulling them back, and it's like, wow, it has, you know, these anim- animated sequences. It has... Um... The nightmare sequence is amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, we got to see this at the Frida earlier this year, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know... I obviously I'm gonna jump ahead and say I recommend this movie to anybody, but yeah. it's it was number one on the sight and sound films of all time, and it's the number two right now. Yeah, I think we can recommend it. But I recommend this so much that if you have the opportunity to see this on a big screen, run to the theater to go see this because you know growing up and watching this on TV, obviously it's beautiful and it's captivating. But when you get to see it on a big screen and be immersed in it. You feel like you're part of the movie. Oh, yeah. And um, we, we can even jump, like, move on a little bit here because, you know, they, they fall in love or whatever, and, you know. But mm-hmm. we get to the part where she actually, like, dies. Mm-hmm. And it is so captivating talking about being immersed in a moment when she has, she explains to Scotty that she has these nightmares about this bell tower or whatever, and they go to... The, uh, the mission. The mission. I think it's like San 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 Juan uh, Batista. Batista. Yeah. yeah. They go to San Juan Batista, and it's like you see this bell tower and how it's shot, like from overhead, where it's like the models and the map painting. It's all intertwined. And I'm like, I feel like I'm in like this surrealist world because this mission doesn't look right. It doesn't look real. Yeah. But you're you're. I'm so enveloped into it. When they go back to it at the end, I'm like, I I can't look away from this. It's so compelling. And I mean, it also helps. You know, we're from California, and I mean, I at least I think in the fourth or the fifth grade. It, it's the fourth grade mission project that like 
every kid did. Every yeah. kid went to a mission. They had to build one as like a little diorama and do their like little mission. Report. I don't know if that's just a California thing or it's. It's. I'm pretty sure it's just a California thing because um what? like Spain came in and they like mm-hmm. founded California and they put missions. I think it was like a day's ride from everyone. Like missions are like churches. Yeah. Um, what mission did you have to do? San Juan Capistrano was mine. Oh, lucky. I know. My brother did San Gabriel? I did San Juan Rafael. Oh, yeah. But, um, what I was going to add to that is, um, you know, part of that project was we actually got to go to a mission Mm -hmm. as a field trip and look around. And, I mean, that field trip was, yeah, like in the fourth grade. And when you watch this movie, it's like, it makes it that much more real because we've actually been to a mission and it's very, you know, not this, not this, but kind of like that because that's the, you're stepping back into time. And, and I think that's the coolest thing about the movie because granted this movie was made in 58. I'm pretty sure those missions looked much different and were probably nicer back then just because they were like, you know, run over by a bunch of fourth graders. Yeah. But knowing what they look like now and then looking at this, I'm like, oh, this is like something your imagination would kind of like come up with if you heard like old, like a mission, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this old, like stone building with this big religious church. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nuns and priests and whatever everywhere. But seeing that and, and seeing it in this movie it really felt like I'm not watching like something real. And that's like all the Technicolor mm-hmm. also on this. Everything about this movie seems like a dream sequence. Yeah. Like nothing ever feels like I'm in a concrete reality from I'm just the kind word of, go. I'm, I'm floating. I'm yeah. floating through each scene. And... <laughs> Which happens with Scotty every time he walks through the cemetery. Oh yeah. Where mm-hmm. it looks like he's not, he's not actually, wa- that's a green screen. Why did Hitchcock green screen him when he's in the mediums, but then when he's in the white shots, that's like the real cemetery. That's like so fucking weird. I don't know. But I mean, it's kind of cool because, you know, Hitchcock hated on location shoots. Yes. And I think all the on location stuff was filmed in 16 days. Yeah, yeah. I have that written down somewhere, but that's about right. He filmed almost the entire locations of san francisco in like two weeks and he did as much as he could in the studios a lot of what we see is actually them acting in front of green screens or blue screens i guess this is what it'd be yeah but what i thought was the coolest thing was all the driving sequences where we see the cars on the go they're actually driving the correct way they're not chopped up and you know we're making it you know how they get from point a to point b no, they're literally going the correct way. I think someone went on, like, Google Maps, or they actually made the drive, and I was like, oh, yeah, I was able to get from her nice hotel or wherever she lives to Scotty's house. Yeah. And I was like, that's really rare to get that in a movie where you that, can actually make the pilgrimage. It's that weird attention to detail about yeah. this movie. Because, I mean, a lot of movies of this time period, and a lot of movies just in general, but you would see things where oh, well, that's, like, a weird flub, or that's, like, eh, that doesn't look all that correct. But that was also because these movies would play in theaters, and your town might see Vertigo one weekend for its entire run, and that's it. Like, Mm -hmm. it'd only play in your theater for maybe, like, a couple of weeks, and then you'd never see it again. Yeah. So if there was a flub up in a movie, like, 
you know, that eh, it didn't really matter, right? Now nah, it's mm-hmm. going to be in and out. Now when people who are able to, like, rewatch these movies over and over and over again, yeah. you start seeing it's like, oh, no, Hitchcock was was really paying attention to the geography of San Francisco. He's really paying attention to how San Francisco really looks. It, it's really interesting because this movie you mentioned also doubles as a love letter to the city of San Francisco. Yeah, because this movie is based on a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a French book called Deantre les Morts. So it's, you Deantre know, les Morts. Uh, so, God, I didn't even say that right. <laughs> so in English, it's the living and the dead. And it's based in Paris. Mm-hmm. So it was this thing where he was kind of like, you know, I don't want to do Paris. And Bernard Herrmann, who did the score, when he was writing the score, he envisioned it being set in New Orleans. But Hitch was like, you know what? This works kind of more with the vibe of San Francisco. I guess he kind of equated San Francisco being like the Paris of the United States because it's this metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Lots of walking. There's a lot of artsy stuff. Lots and, of history. Yeah. And I've heard uh, pretentious hipsters call San Francisco a, a European city. You know, oh, I don't even think of San Francisco as an American city. No, this is more like like Milan or Paris, a European city. And uh, I hate all those people. And San Francisco is kind of a shithole now. But, A, you know, it it was pretty once. I've never been. I'd like to go visit. Mm -hmm. Um, Mostly because they have that bucket of cookies. And I want to go get the bucket of cookies. They have a lot of good food there. I I, I, I can talk a lot of shit about San Francisco, but they got good food. Yeah, I want to go to the wharf and, like, experience that. But... I also have a cousin that lives up there and, you know, loves the area. But, yeah, you know, it it feels like you're entering a different world, even though it's somewhere that's really not too far away from us. Mm-hmm. It's here in California. Well, I think that's the thing Hitchcock's working with, because he's paying a lot of attention to detail, like the streets or whatever. That's a real working direction path and all this other stuff. There's real locations going on, and he's like... Yeah, I'm showing you things that are real. Like, that's a real thing that you can look at and touch and see or whatever. Like, but Ernie's. nothing in the story is real. Ernie's is a real restaurant. Yeah. That, that's why but, I was kind of like, you know, wow, these things are actually real and you could go there and you could touch these things. It's like, that makes this movie... Neato. It, well, neato, yeah. But, I mean, it's like, it just plays in with the vertigo where things aren't always what they seem. Yeah, nothing, everything is off kilter, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are real places, but these people aren't real. No. And it's like, that's the thing. Madeline's not real. She's a fabrication. Yeah. Scotty's not, you know, really real. I mean, his name's not even Scotty. It's John. It's John. And that's and that's the thing. So let's um let's talk about this. Because after Madeline, quote unquote, kills herself. Yeah. You know, we have Scotty in this just utter depression. He's drifting through San Francisco. I'm imagining, you know, he's probably, you know getting on the verge to go on a uh, Jack Ripper right Jack the Ripper like crime spree to make up for his loss and then he sees Judy. Well, I mean, you know, he also goes through it where he's I guess in a sanitarium. Yeah, he I think they say he's starting to suffer from like clinical depression and he's like He stops speaking. Yeah. And Mitch can't even get anything out of him anymore. And you show, you know, again who's the better of the two for him where she's there and she's speaking with doctors and she's playing him music and she's visiting him. And it's like, obviously this is the right healthy choice for you, but he is just so lost in love that he can't, you know, see, you know, two inches away from his hand. Uh, Okay. This might just be me trying to find all the Hitchcock tropes in a movie, Mm -hmm. 
do you think Midge is one of Hitchcock's secret gay characters? Do you think that's why she broke off the engagement with with um, Scotty? Because she knew she couldn't love him the way he loved her? That was a thought, too. I mean, that was something that I, I considered. But... There, it, there's, like, something legitimate there that you think that's not... Like, like that kernel is there. Like, I think that's laid in. She, yeah. She's a woman. She's designing brassieres. She's... Very, um... She could be bi. She's very intimate with the female form. Yeah, she could be bisexual. Yeah, she could be bi, and it could be a thing where maybe she would think he would never love her completely because she, you know... Wouldn't love him completely. Exactly. In that. So... And I, I, it's, I think it's one of those things where, one, I'm trying to, like, pin all the... Mm -hmm, the tropes. Uh, all the tropes in the movie, but it also kind of makes sense in this scene because she's... She obviously cares for him, she obviously loves him, but I'm like, but why did you call it off? And I'm trying to keep answering that question. And that's the only one that kind of clicks mm -hmm. for me where, oh, she broke it up because she couldn't love him the way he could love her. Yeah. You know, but it's also sad because this is the last time we see Midge in the whole film. Yeah. After that, no more Midge. But I mean, even when she's talking to the doctors and he's like, you know, yeah, we're going to have to figure this out slowly and figure out why, you know, he's in this state. And she's like, he's madly in love with her. And it's just kind of this thing where, you know, you could tell it kind of hurts her to say it, but it's the truth. It's like, you know, yeah, they were engaged for however long, but he never loved her the way that he loved Madeline. And it took him all this time to finally find that person and have these feelings. And then this person isn't even real. Yeah. Yeah. And, he finds that out when he finally meets Judy mm -hmm. and the, and then, Oh boy, is, there's lots of problems with that. This, right. This is the most, mm -hmm. this is the part of the movie where I was like, man, this really doesn't play well in 2022. Ooh, Lord. Well, no, even back then too, because I mean, you know, he's Hitchcock has wrote, written a character where you're supposed to feel for him and kind of, you know, identify with him where it's, you know, we all, you know, want somebody, and if, you know, our somebody was in danger, we'd want to save them and protect them. And then we get this side of him where it's, you know... His obsession is not uh, completely altruistic. He is obsessed with a fantasy that can never be, and he is bending the will of a real woman to create her in his fantasy. Scotty has turned into Dr. Frankenstein, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to build myself the perfect woman... And you may fight with me, but ultimately I know you're going to cave because Judy just, you know, wants to be accepted. And, you know, I don't like this, but yeah, I'll let you do this. Yeah. And it's like, woman, have a stronger backbone than that. that and that's the thing. That's that's where we get into, like, Kim Novak and, like, the great performances mm -hmm. she's giving in here. Because when we see her for the first time, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's that kind of looks like Madeline. I mean, like, obviously I know it's the same actress. Yeah. But it's like how the makeup's done, how she dresses, her mm -hmm. hair, everything about her, even her body language. I'm like, well, that's not the same person. Like, it's close, but it's not the same person. Mm -hmm. And even as Scotty starts, like, bearing down on her, becomes this, like, mm -hmm. absolute, like, just shitty person and molds her into Madeline. Every time I'm like, yeah, but she's not, she's close, but she's not there. And I think that's the, even the thing that Scotty's realizing is that, I'm molding a real person into a fantasy that can never be. Yeah, and you have Judy, you know, with each modification asking, you know, if I do this, will you love me? 
And, you know, instead of Scotty being, you know, I already love you, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, just to see, you know, what everything would look like. No, he goes, yeah, I'll love let, you if you look let, like her. And let's it's like, be honest. Bro. Is there any excuse Scotty could come up with no. that would not make him look like a total D-bag? No. And it's just like, the fact that she lets him do this. And it's like, you know, piece by piece, you're like, yeah, I could kind of see that she's starting to look like Madeline. And it's not till we get to her room when she pins her hair back and comes out of the bathroom and she's whirled over in that green light just like the first time we saw madeline and in all of her green car and she just and i mean even she's reeked in nostalgia with the lighting too you know it's more of a mist than a light so it's like she appears out of thin air madeline's back and she's got the walk down and you know the, the madeline smile and it's like oh my god you know it's like somebody flipped the switch and Madeline's back. Judy's gone. What is going on? And and Scott is like, oh, finally. Oh. And, you know, they embrace and it's all happy-go-lucky. And then tragedy strikes because Madeline, you should have just thrown away the necklace. Uh, Judy, you should have Ju- thrown away the necklace. They should have just thrown away the necklace because they're about to go out on the town in a nice, happy, oh, thank God, you look like my dead girlfriend uh, dinner mm-hmm. and finds out that, oh, Judy, you seem to have the same necklace that uh, Carlotta had. That Carlotta had. Uh, what seems to be the problem here, Clarence? And it's like, oh, well, that's. And then he figures it out. Yeah. He's like, that's why you look so much like Madeline. That's why you can almost be exactly like her, because mm-hmm. you're the woman who I fell in love with. Mm-hmm. You're wearing this necklace. There's a ruse going on here. Yeah. I'm being fucked with. And then he goes back to the to the bell tower. Right. Goes back to the mission. I mean, I, I love the drive because, you know, it's him telling her, you know, I want to go on a nice, you know, drive before dinner. And then we see the the same incline and the trees and the top of the trees. And that's where she's like, oh, shit, he's taking me back to the scene of the crime. I like he how knows. it's a nice drive before dinner. And I'm like, that's probably like an hour and a half drive. Yeah. Like, that is probably not a short drive. And she's like, man, we're kind of going out into the woods here. Am, am I going to get whacked? Please no. That's when you tuck and roll out of the car. <laughs> oh, really? You're just like, if I'm in the car for 30 minutes? Yeah, no, I'm getting whacked. I'm jumping out. Bless. Oh, oof. But, uh, but they get back to that mission, and it's like, the, yeah, exactly. We get that big reveal. We now know what's going on. And then Scotty just confronts Judy, and he's like, bitch, tell the truth. Starts slapping her around. You know, not quite, but, but he's, you know, he's, you know, dragging her basically up the stairs of this bell tower. And she's like, you know, oh, you've got your, your vertigo. You're not going to be able to go up any further. And he's like, mm. bitch, I, I will. And then he mm. goes up and then he's like, ah, oh, Judy, I'm cured of my vertigo. But bitch, you still lied to me. Mm. Yeah. And goes back in on her. And it's fascinating because at the beginning of the movie, Midge explains to Scotty that, hey, they say that, you know, this kind of condition, this vertigo, this uh, a phob- this phobia, you can break these sometimes with traumatic events. Mm-hmm. And Because we see him very mildly, okay, you know what, I'm going to climb up a step stool and I'm going to slowly cure myself. And, you know, oh, okay, let's do something a little bit taller than that. And he's like, that's great, I can look up, I can look down, I can look up, I can look down. And it's like... You know, then he looks down and sees the street beneath him, and it's like... It's over. Yeah, and that's how I feel like when I go to a two-story mall. I look over the the side, and I feel like I'm gonna 
crumble into a ball. But it's just, yeah, you know, we're we're given the the foreground that you need to go through something just as traumatic to snap you out of this. And this realization that he's been duped has, you know, like, no, fuck you. I'm not afraid of these heights anymore. I, I believe as said in the movie, look here, bitch. Yeah. And he slaps her, you know. So many, so many slaps in your movie. I mean, let's be honest here. They were slapping women all over the place back in the 20s and 30s. Wow, rude. I, boo, come on. Public Enemy, I'm pretty sure Gone with the Wind, there were some slaps. There's a lot of slaps in old, in old Hollywood movies. But they get to the top of the bell tower. She finally confesses to Scotty what happened. You know, it was all a, it was all a plan. It was Gavin, that that evil monster. He put me up to it. Uh, but you know, I was in on it, but I wasn't planning on falling in love with you like I did. So you got to believe me that I love you, and it's just like I know our relationship is built on a lie, but I really do love you. Please don't throw me out of a bell tower. And that's why I didn't give you too much crap about you changing my hair and my clothes. I. Mm. Honestly, Scotty, like, this woman has put up with a lot of bullshit from you. <laughs> Even if she lied, like, that's a keeper. That's a key. Even, <sighs> Even if she, you know, was involved in a murder, I mean... Yeah, there's no coming back from that. I mean, she still looked like Kim Novak. Like She did, but, you on. know, again, you know... She, she looked kind of fine. She was part of a murder. She put you through this mental anguish where your brain literally, literally broke... And then wasn't planning on coming back for you. Still stayed in the same town, assumed another identity. Okay, so she's not that bright. It's just like, bruh. Yeah, Scotty has every reason to be pissed off. And yeah, I'm not going to take you back. Uh, but he does because they embrace. It's it's beautiful. They're like, I, I, I love you, Judy. And she's like, I love you, Scotty. Wait, what's that shadowy figure coming up? And, you know, Matt, uh, Judy screams and falls out the fucking bell tower anyway and it's, yeah. a, and it's a nun and she's like i was investigating the noise oh oh well that sucks let me ring this mm. bell Ding. Mm. scott is like <laughs> like he's darth vader and uh yeah that's the movie but um yeah why are the f what is up with the 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 nun well, I mean, she lives there. She works there. It's just like, yo, we, we had somebody that just jumped out of this bell, bell tower and died. Like, I think you said it's been a, a year completely. So yeah. about a year ago, someone did this. So I can see, you know, oh, hey, this is a mission. There's suddenly a car out here. Let's go investigate the tower in case someone else gets the same genius idea of let's hop out of the tower and <laughs> I, I understand that, like, practically in the universe of the movie. But I'm like, that's really how you end your movie? Spooky Nun appears out of the darkness, and, and Judy's like, well, fuck this noise, and jumps off the fucking top of the bell tower? Well, apparently it's also the only one of Hitchcock's movies where the killer doesn't get, um... Yeah, it doesn't get caught. Doesn't get caught or get into any trouble. Actually, haha, speaking of deleted scenes. Oh, so, the, we're, that's right. You, you did mention a deleted scene. Yes, so the deleted scene is actually a alternate ending. And the alternate ending of the movie, uh, let me see, so I, I can tell you exactly what it is. You know, I think that was on your DVD that you let me borrow. Oh, yeah, it, it comes out on all, like, the DVDs and the Laserdiscs and the Blu-rays of the movie because they found the footage. And you can watch it. It's a whole different tone from the last part of the movie. So what it is, um, is 
it shows Midge at her apartment listening to the radio report that says Gavin is being tracked across Europe, you know, gonna be taken into custody, right? Yeah. And then when Midge switches the radio off, Scotty comes into the room. And they, you know, they have a drink, they look out the window in this beautiful silence, and that's, like, the end of the movie. Like, the end of the movie Hmm. is Scotty goes back to Midge, and they just you know, are kind of back at the beginning. Yeah. You know, this this circle, right? This mm-hmm. spiral that goes back. And, but the thing is, is that was pushed by the production code because mm-hmm. they were like, we Gavin needs to get caught or at least an implication that he's being chased. We need a happy to, ending. We need it to be clear. Well, I don't even know if they wanted a happy ending, but they wanted to make sure that Gavin is being arrested. And also, like, I guess, you know, re-in-line traditional, like, relationships, have him go back to Midge, and that's what it was. Yeah. But Hitchcock fought like tooth and nail over it. He was able to convince them to give him the his ending he wanted. So that's why that's not in the movie, which is wild considering how much power the production code had back then. Yeah. Uh, but, but this is also Hitchcock. So this is also Hitchcock. He's another powerhouse where it's like, you know, <laughs> I will fight. Well, the one thing the one thing he couldn't win on was the note scene. There's a scene in the movie where mm-hmm. Judy's writing, like, the confession note. Yeah. And he hated that scene and wanted to cut out. But literally every other person on production and at the studio wanted it in. Yeah. So that's why it's in the movie. But, um, you know, Vertigo. What what are the what are your big thoughts on the movie? You know, we, we talked about, like, what goes on in the movie, all the, the little pieces of it. But mm-hmm. what's your big thing on Vertigo? Just its beauty. Because, I mean, it's a tragic story about this doomed love. Yes. Because they're never going to work out. It's like Romeo and Juliet. No matter how much you want these two people together, it's never going to work. But it's just the beauty in it where I could watch this movie probably paused and just be in awe of what I'm watching. Yeah. Even though I, or not paused, um, muted. But then again, I wouldn't want it muted because the music is just... The score is just a really strong component and other character in the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, Bernard Herrmann, every score I've heard him, like, create carries with it this, like, emotional factor that you can really, you really feel a lot of the character in the music. And, I mean, he's done a lot of, you know, masterpieces. He worked on Psycho. Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. But the score to Vertigo, it's kind of up there with me with, like, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Mm -hmm. where it's just this larger-than-life piece, and it's able to basically take you to another world. You feel like you're there. You're you're one of these characters in this world. And it was kind of interesting to see Bernard Herrmann's inspiration for this score, because he was actually inspired by Richard Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. The fuck is that? <laughs> well, Tristan is that a old, movie? It's a book, but where he's getting this from, I guess, is from the opera. And I've never seen... We're we're a movie pop. We don't talk about opera here. That's way too highbrow for us. I mean, I, you know, I've got my operatic pieces that I like, but I just, you know, you feel the emotion in the score of the movie. And it's interesting that Bernard Herrmann was inspired by another doomed pair of lovers where... You just want them to be together, and it's never going to work. And that's what we get with this movie. It's the thematic element of the move of the movie that influences the thematic elements of his score. And 
we really get to feel a lot of that through the music because like that's the thing music is the greatest direct line to like human emotions yeah. that we've been able to figure out and it, it's just so well done in this oh yeah and I, I kind of did my own experiment with the music of this movie uh. so i think a couple months ago i uh i went to my best friend she's never seen this movie and i kind of wanted to get an outsider's perspective so I gave her... Because you listen to music scores like other people listen to pop music. Oh, yeah. You know, you go through my Apple, mu- my Apple Music list and it's a ton of scores. Is your Spotify roundup going to be like Lawrence of Arabia, Vertigo? A few years ago, yeah. It was a lot of scores and it would be like, you know, some modern music, but it, yeah, it'd be like Psycho and... I, I want to imagine Psycho by Bernard Herrmann, Vertigo by Bernard Herrmann, Hit Me Baby One More Time by Britney Spears, Lawrence of Arabia. I'm like, what the... The weekend, the... Ariana Grande. <laughs> yes, that, that that's the booze tops five on her Spotify. Yes, it, it's very versatile. But I um I went to her and I gave her the the piece of music from when we see Madeline reappear. You know, yeah. Judy is now Madeline and she's walking to Scotty, and it's that beautiful piece of music where we've been hearing it throughout the movie and it's just building and swelling until they finally kiss and you know it's like everything makes sense. It's that piece. So I sent it to her. No context. I just told her, hey, listen to this song and tell me what your opinion is. And, she, you know, gave her some time. She listened to it. And she's like, she's like, that was so beautiful. She's like, but, you know, I felt heartbreak. And then I felt happy. And it's just this inner, you know, intertwining mix of, you know, emotions. And I'm like, you've never seen the movie. And that's basically what this movie is. You know, it's gut-wrenching, you know, em- emotions and, you know some joy in there and it's just like wow bernard you know herman's music is so very strong even years later well that's the masterful work that a great composer can do with a film because you know tarkovsky said it best what you can't do visually you do with what you do with music yeah you know if you're trying to get an emotion across and like the visuals aren't working out don't worry you have a composer for that sergio leone said you know I provide uh, uh, the dr- I provide the the melody and mm-hmm. then Ennio Morricone provides all the drama because he does he did all the music for his movies and I think that's the beauty of this Hitchcock and Herman um, in a relationship they had because they did a, a bunch of movies together yeah and I mean in Psycho it's heavy strings you know it's the it's basically like Jaws where you know we're picking up on the music cues to bring us to the next kill and in this movie. You know, we're just being kind of pulled into this kind of, it's not a lullaby, but with the way that the movie's kind of dreamy, the music kind of carries you too. And it just carries you in and out of each scene until we hit this, you know, big climatic moment where Madeline's back and it's just, you know, everything we've ever wanted is in this scene. And that's how the music conveys where it's just, you know, you finally have what you've been looking for. It just, it makes me so happy. I love the music in this movie. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Um, but so much of this movie just works in silence. Yeah. When he's tracking Madeline, when they're, when they're the Redwoods. Like, you get a lot of visual information. Like, this was made like a silent movie. And I, I will say that, yeah, this movie is a feast for the eyes. It's an yeah. incredibly beautiful movie. But I, I it's interesting how you say... It's a story of a doomed romance because this is a this is the story of a guy obsessive over being in love with something that can't 
not not only isn't real could never be real you know yeah. he's obsessed with a, like a fantasy and it's like I, I don't know if i i don't know how i feel about scotty at the end of the movie yeah because i mean it's built in you know you feel empathetic for scotty and you you want him to be happy and then seeing how he lets the bad parts of him take over and it's you know i'm gonna make you who i want you to be and it's just like what happens to free will well, I mean, what happens about the care of the other person? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, this girl, you know, crushed your heart. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to rip yours out and, you know, I'm, you know, you're going to be mine. Mm. And it's just like, damn, Scotty. It's like, I really liked you in the first act. The second act, it's like, whoa. Well, I, and I think that's the thing about Vertigo. I think it's really an analogy for Hitchcock as a director. He's a guy who's obsessive. He's a guy who builds people mm -hmm. you know he builds these these people to play parts in his movies like that's what gavin does yeah he casts uh judy to play mm -hmm. madeline and then um oh god and then scotty falls in love with the character and then he tries to get get cast another actress to play the same part it's almost like the what the hitchcock blonde is mm -hmm. is some woman or something that hitchcock saw in something or a movie or a show or whatever and he's been trying to like recast the part ever it's since. It's the unattainable dream. Yeah. It's like no matter how far you chase it, you try to make it a reality, it's not real. And I mean even Scotty was cast because you know, you he needed a cop to be there and kind of vouch for, yeah, my wife, she was kind of losing it and you know i wanted this guy to follow her around and make sure she was safe and also to make sure that she actually was crazy and wasn't just faking it to try and get at me and oh you know scotty does have this you know phobia of, of heights so of course if she jumps from a high place he can't save her because he can't go up that high without you know just crumbling into a ball you know on that tower leading up to where uh madeline is it this is a movie that i think works so well as as a hitchcockian piece mm -hmm. as this piece of the obsessive artist the obsessive director um i i do think the movie has its flaws but i i feel like the flaws of the movie are things that just make it more charming and work better yeah. Like I made, I made a point that's um, like the murder scheme's a little convoluted. Yeah. And like, let's be honest, it really is. I'm gonna find this total stranger. Well, I th I think she might be his mis ex mistress. I'm gonna find this woman to play my wife, and then convince this um, uh, agora like a like phobic detective to fall in love with her, mm -hmm. and then set her up in a to position where they're gonna go up to this mission. And then I'm going to throw my real wife out the window mm -hmm. and she, and it's going to be so perfect. He won't be able to tell. And I'll have a witness of the whole thing. My wife, that's already dead. My wife, that's already dead. Who it's like where you, you know, if she's your wife, you live with her, you could just, you know, help her make it look like, you know, a suicide where, you know, Oh, she was consuming a lot of sleeping pills or something like that. Or it could have been simple. Cut the brakes on her car. I oh, mean, my, that, that car. That, that that green... Oh, my God. I, I made a note. I had to search for that car because I I love cars. I'm terrible with car names. But, I mean, th this car has been... It, in your dreams. This car is basically my Madeline. It's just... It haunts me. <laughs> What's but, the car? But the car that Madeline drives is a 1957 
Jaguar Mark Eight in green, and my God, I love that car. Would you hate Gavin more if he cut the brakes on that sucker, and that's how he killed his wife? I would, because that's a beautiful car to it's destroy. A, it's a very beautiful piece of machinery. Yeah, I mean, my grandparents um, on my mom's side, they actually had a green car. Obviously, not a Jaguar. I'm yeah. not sure what kind of car it is. I've only seen it in the pictures, and I fell with in love with it back then because it's a striking color, beautiful car. And then seeing this movie, and I'm just like, wow. I'm like, that is a stuff that dreams are made of. But even Jimmy Stewart, you know, his character, he drives a 1956 DeSoto Fire Dome Sportsman hardtop coupe. And I mean, I was looking at him like, yeah, that, that looks kind of like a Scotty car. You know, classic, kind of, you know, something you'd see uh, in a film noir, except the car is in white instead of black. I got a question for you, because, you know, Obsessed with cars as you are. Yes. The movie, you know, you said looks like a noir car, but not really. Do you think this film qualifies as a film noir? Because that's something of actual contention with people. I think so. I I think that there's a little bit of film noir in this. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, all of its theming and how mm -hmm. the movie movie plays out falls in line with film noir. It's just none of the visual cues of film noir are in it. And that's why a lot of people have issue with it. Yeah, and I mean... I'm notorious for loving my black and white. I love black and white photography, film noir. And with this movie, it's like, yeah, it wouldn't have been done any justice if it was filmed in black and white. This film needed to be in color. I mean, I know that people had problems with the saturation, but it's like, I think this movie needs it. And it, I think it really does. And I think, you know, it's okay that, you know, a film noir kind of embraces the lighter colors in life. Because, I mean, you still have the heaviness of the characters, and it kind of I mean, works as a good contrast. It's a heavy, dark movie. Yeah. and it's But it looks like it's a fucking musical. And I think that's yeah. another thing. It's the dichotomy of of this guy, Scotty. You know, oh, on the forefront, he's this, you know, oh, shocks, detective. You know, he's Jimmy's fucking steward. And then underneath that, he's just, no, he's this obsessive madman. I mean, considering they kind of try to make him as vanilla as possible i i read somewhere that he wears like i think four different colors in the movie Mm -hmm. and they were saying that his styling was professional bachelor of that you know of that era and it's like yeah you know he's the everyman he's the everyman you know i've got you know a couple of suit jackets in different colors for different reasons and then you have madeline who's you know basically this porcelain doll she looks like she's created in a lab i was actually gonna say like a secret garden where you walk in and there's just beautiful colors you know of Mm. different flowers and trees and it's just this thing where you know that wizard of oz moment where you step through the door and you're surrounded by color and life and it's just you you try to take it all in and that's what scotty's trying to do and he's kind of trying to step into that even though he's not that kind of person man this is a really good movie it is and i mean the music in this movie, I swear. I mean, it's up there with... Well, not quite, but... Uh, it's close enough. But it's up there with, like, Lawrence of Arabia, where oh, it's Oh, Lawrence just, of Arabia scores so good. Where, it, you know, it's you know a piece of music that you hear, and it's, you know, something that doesn't easily leave you. It, you know, once you hear it, you're stuck with it forever. Yeah, it's, it's one of these movies that is incredibly haunting with all the production design, with the music, with the, the theming. But I, I guess here's here's where we're at the point. 
What are your final thoughts on Vertigo? Alfred Hitchcock's most Hitchcockian Hitchcock that ever Hitchcocked. Hitchcock. It's Kino. It is cinema. It is cinema. No, I mean, it's just one of these movies that even though it's dark and it's heavy and it's depressing, it makes me feel alive. And I, you know, I feel like, you know, I could be watching this in a dark theater, but realistically, I'm walking down those streets of San Francisco. I'm in the, the Redwood Forest. I'm, you know, being transported different places. And even though it's sad and depressing, it makes me happy to watch it. Oh, yeah. This, I When I was watching this movie last night, I, uh, I like, stopped taking notes halfway through and just, like, put the notebook aside. And I'm, like, oh, I'm yeah. just engrossed in the movie. Oh, yeah. It's one of the, it is the craziest thing watching it. Because usually I'm, like, really good about, like, okay, like, watch the movie and I'll jot down a note or two mm -hmm. or whatever. And it's, like, I'm, I'm pretty good about maintaining that routine. But, like, halfway through the movie, I'm, like, I I can't not look at this screen. It's so engaging. It's so enthralling. It demands your attention. It does. And and I think that's the beauty of Vertigo. It's just so captivating. Mm -hmm. Like Madeline, like Judy. It's just, I'm like Scotty. I'm just so captivated with, with this thing. And I can't let it go. <sighs> but that's, that is Vertigo. I did have a piece you had, of trivia. You had one more trivia? Yes, because you've been trying to cut me off this episode, uh, uh, and I have no a lot worries, of trivia. No worries. Okay, welcome to the Booze Trivia Corner. But, you know, I, I watched the DVD that you let me borrow, and it has bonus features, which any DVD that has bonus features is... You're going to watch all of them. Oh, absolutely. So, originally I thought it was the making of Vertigo, but it was actually the making of the restoration of Vertigo. Yeah. So this was happening during the early 90s where they, uni or, yeah, Universal, uh, a team there got to pick a film to restore. And two people there decided to restore it, uh, Robert A. Harris and James C. Katz. And they worked on a, a 70 millimeter print of Vertigo. And I thought it was cool that, you know, they were able to go to Paramount and they were able to find the score completely intact. So they were able to drop that in. And, you know, cleaning it up and doing some Foley work. But what I didn't see in the documentary was that actually Jimmy Stewart came out of retirement to help consult them and work on the restoration project. Oh, really? Yeah. He oh, actually, yeah, he, I guess, completely retired in 94. He was just like, I'm done with like, you know. I mean, at that point, he was God in his 80s. I think he died in 97. Yeah, that so, sounds about right. So, you know, this is, you know, getting towards the end of his life. So, you know, no more, you know, doing like interviews and stuff like that. No more old Jimmy Stewart out here. No more old Jimmy Stewart. But yeah, he actually stepped out of retirement to help, you know, consult and assist them while doing the restoration of this film. And I guess that's like the, the major staple restoration that we've had to work on to get the one that we currently have right now. Yeah, because this was one of those movies that was... Because there was, like, a bunch of movies back in, like, the 80s, 90s, back in, like, the 90s, when people look back at classic cinema, and it's like, oh, like, Lawrence of Arabia was, like, really chewed up, Spartacus was really chewed up, yeah. um, a lot of Hitchcock movies of that, of, like, this, this era were pretty much dissolving, just because people didn't take care of movie stock back then. This was also one of the five Hitchcock movies that disappeared. Oh, really? Yeah, um, it was a thing where... 
five movies of Hitchcock completely disappeared from um, theaters and... Like public record, basically. Yeah, and I guess they were given to his daughter, and it was just kind of, you know, laying there. So Vertigo was one of them, Rope, Rear Window. So it was after a while where she was like, you know what, we're getting a new audience. We're kind of, we're going into the 80s. It's like, why don't we, you know, re-release these? And it just, you know, like wildfire. People were running to go see Vertigo. Well, I guess that makes sense because Vertigo, when it came out, was a flop. It was a flop, And yeah. it was a movie that I think a lot of critical consensus at the time said, oh, this is a bad Hitchcock movie. And it was, it took like, God, I want to say 20, 30 years after the fact before people were like, no, this might, no, this is a good Hitchcock movie. And then it was like, okay, it might be a great Hitchcock movie. And then it was, is this the best Hitchcock movie? And then is this the best movie of all time? Well, apparently... A couple of months after Jimmy Stewart died, one of the theaters in San Francisco, they decided to play Vertigo like over a weekend just to kind of like, you know, hey, Jimmy Stewart passed. Let's do this as an homage to him. Mm -hmm. Apparently it did so well, it beat out all the sales in the other theaters in the city that were showing like new releases because everyone was flocking to go see Vertigo. That's God, that's wild. Because you got to think about it like now. I don't think that could ever happen now. I mean, we had a good size audience when we went to go see Vertigo. Well, I'm, I'm talking about, would Vertigo release now beat out Wakanda forever? Oof. Would it beat out Black Adam? Would it? Because that's the thing. We just live in a so different universe now. Yeah. And also it's like streaming and all that other stuff. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to think if there's a, a movie re-release that would make like, opening weekend marvel numbers and it's like i can't think of any movie old enough that it's so hard to find that could do it unless you got something like like a lost um scorsese film which i don't think any of those exist except the weird uh one that doesn't exist also that bonus feature on that dvd it was so weird to see a young scorsese that was just you know i, I like that a young scorsese but it's like 90 scorsese so he's still like 50 something yeah but i mean it's like he's in the suit he's got dark hair and it's just like whoa that's a trip i'm not used to you being this scorsese and then I have, like, a making of Vertigo, the book. Mm-hmm. I think it's from the 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's the one that forwards the book and, you know, he writes in it. And it's just like, well, it's like, he, he loves this movie. Well, that's the thing. Well, Scorsese is a lover of cinema. Mm-hmm. And Vertigo was one of those movies that he championed for the restoration. Because mm-hmm. I think he's part of, like, the World Cinema Project that goes around and picks up different movies from around the world and tries to expose them to other places. Yeah. And he does a lot of restoration work. He did the red shoes, which I watched the red shoes not too long ago. That movie's a, a goddamn masterpiece and it is gorgeous. But that movie was one that disintegrated and fell out of mm-hmm. public view. And then he spent years trying to make that movie look as good as it did in his memory. Cause he saw it in the theater. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing with vertigo. You know, they're trying to make it look as good as it did in your memory when you saw it in the theater for the first time. But yeah. But great movie. Uh, two thumbs up. Two big thumbs up. Run to go see this movie. Um, but yeah, next week. Yes. This is the week that I've been building up to for almost three years. It it's, is going to be uh, something big. Real is, big. It is. It's finally happening. Next week we're talking about Psycho. Oh, Psycho 2? I mean, we could. I've S- seen Psycho Three. I- I've seen Psycho Three. Four. I've seen Psycho Four. Is there Psycho Five? Or well, don't American Psycho. <sighs> American Psycho Two. No. Mila Kunis. No. 
No, no. So we're doing Psycho? We're doing Psycho. Oh, I'm very excited. Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee. Oh my god, I love this movie. It's This is your favorite Hitchcock, right? It is my favorite Hitchcock movie. It always has been, I mean... It's, it is like the definitive, like, it's like the most popular Hitchcock film, bar none, right? Most popular, yeah, but I think this was one of those movies where I saw it at a young age and I'm like, wow, this is what film is. Yeah. And this is what started the love. It was just like, wow, this is filmmaking and this is awesome. Oh, man, I can't wait. I this love This Universal Monsters, it's just like, wow. <sighs> so, where can they go to find it? Well, if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Yeah, you can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube, where we upload video versions of these podcasts in beautiful, low-effort slideshows. Woohoo! So you can go there, like, comment, subscribe, and um, tell me that I'm an idiot. But if you wanted to tell us that on social media, where can they go? Please don't. But if you want to, you know, like our posts, see our adventures, you can find us on Instagram at the Film Club Podcast, where we post trivia, daily stories, and upcoming episodes. And with that, we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. Good evening. Good evening.